now, let's turn our attention back to this beautiful passage pointing us to the ways that Jesus moved in the world, showing us what God is really like. Uh, it was the Jewish belief that three days after the departed had left us, some, when someone had died, uh, they believed that they would just kind of hover over their own tomb for the first three days. Uh, and then on the fourth day, they would finally depart. One of the sources I read said that one of the reasons that the Jewish people believed this was that because by the fourth day, the face would have become so decayed that the people who had loved them in life would no longer have been able to recognize them. Um, so if you wanted to pay your respects to the family, mourn with those who mourn, it was good Jewish etiquette to arrive on one of those first three days. They were set aside for intense mourning for Mary and Martha's family. So by John letting us know that Jesus didn't arrive until that fourth day, um, I think it was his Jewish way of letting us know a couple of different things. First, Lazarus was beyond a shadow of a doubt in anyone's mind, dead. Hearing perhaps another layer of pain is that Jesus was absent during that time, those first three days. Martha and Mary were probably wrestling with Jesus' absence and silence. Um, when I read the line, Martha went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. That brought up some kind of uncomfortable, familiar feelings for me. Where were you, God? You didn't really act in the way that I thought you might or I hoped that you might. Certainly not in the timing that I hoped that you might. Uh, just kind of wrestling with God's silence. Maybe I wouldn't even call it mad, just kind of so gut-wrenched that I think I'm going to keep my distance for a while. Martha went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. But then, uh, you know, Martha comes to Mary. She says, he's asking for you. Jesus, seeing us in those moments of our deepest pain, never demanding, always respectful, waiting for us to come to him. So Mary runs out. She goes out to the place where Jesus is. And if you remember, Martha and Mary actually say the same words to Jesus. If only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Although um, I think the main difference for me is I imagine Martha standing on two feet, processing somewhat intellectually, and Mary is running, not walking, down on her knees, weeping bitterly, looking up into the face of Jesus in this honest, kind of guttural brokenness, saying, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. This vulnerability and honesty it reminds me a lot more of my little one-year-old Brooks than it does of myself. He'll just kind of, you know, run up to me, these like cartoon-sized tears in his eyes, and 
say, help, you know, help me hold. My most recent favorite is he'll come up and say, wow, why? Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. Then Jesus wept. This is a strong, compelling reaction from Jesus. But why the anger? Why the tears? B.B. Warfield says it this way. The distress of Mary and her companions enraged Jesus because it brought poignantly home to his consciousness the evil of death. Its unnaturalness, its violent tyranny. In Mary's grief, he sees and feels the misery of the whole race and burns with rage against the oppressor of men. It is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death, and whom he has come to destroy. Jesus, carrying the weight, the destruction of death, the injustice of losing Lazarus in an even deeper way than even Mary possibly could. Jesus weeping when he sees Mary weeping. This gospel was written primarily to the Greeks. And in this picture, John is creating a staggering picture. Because to the Greeks, the primary characteristic of God was a word that they called apatheia. It means the complete inability to feel any emotion whatsoever. Because to feel grief or joy or anger or gladness, you have to allow somebody to have that effect on you. You're giving over your power in a way. This is an incredible story that ends in resurrection, but to the original hearers, this is the moment that would have seemed the most impossible. John creating a portrait of God in the person of Jesus, whose very heart is wrung in anguish over his people's pain. This passage um, actually reminds me a lot of the first book in the Chronicles of Narnia series, The Magician's Nephew. It follows a young boy named Diggory who is being raised by a single parent. And then that single parent, his mom, is dying of cancer. But then he falls into this magical world and he meets Aslan. And he starts to think maybe he could do something about this. Um, If you could pull up the first slide. Thank you. Well, you know how it feels if you begin hoping for something that you want desperately, badly. You almost fight against the hope because it's too good to be true. You've been disappointed so many times before. That was how Diggory felt. Aslan was bigger and more beautiful and more brightly golden and more terrible than he had thought. He dared not look into the great eyes. Please, Mr. Lion, Aslan, sir, said Diggory, could you, may I please, will you give me some magical fruit of this country to make my mother well? 
He had been desperately hoping the lion would say yes. He had been horribly afraid it might say no. But he was taken aback when it did neither. In this moment, Diggory, like Mary during those first three days, like you and me, is having that heartbreaking, perceived experience of unanswered prayer. But Diggory can't give up. He just gets up his courage and he's going to ask again. If you could go to the next one, thanks. He had a second, some, he had for a second some wild idea of saying, I'll try to help you if you'll promise to help my mother. But he realized in time that the lion was not at all the sort of person one could try to make bargains with. But when he had said yes, he thought of his mother and he thought of the great hopes he had had how they were all dying away and a lump came up in his throat and tears in his eyes and he blurted out, please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked up at its face and what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. In this moment, Diggory is actually still not given answers about what will happen to his mother. But what is given is a direct experience of the compassionate, tender presence of God. A looking directly into the face of God and seeing that he's carrying his pain in an even deeper way than Diggory could. In this moment, he's also given a task, which in my mind is kind of more like an embodied question. Does he really trust in the goodness of Aslan? It seemed to me in my periods of grief that so often we kind of want to come up with the right words of comfort, whether it's to tell ourselves or to tell somebody else. But have you noticed how so often those words just kind of fall flat? They just don't come out right. And I think... The truth is that words could never really touch the depth of that experience. I don't know if your friend is going to get better. I don't know if you're about to brush up against the miraculous. I don't know. But what's really, really powerful is when you have a friend who's willing to weep with you while you weep who can look directly into the face of your pain unflinchingly and stay present to it, stay present to you. Just sit in that silence as you process and they listen. That's when a relationship becomes really intimate. Um, So, Dave was asking us to reflect on 
what ways we are renewing our repentance, turning from darkness. And for me, I feel like in this season, I've really been working to recognize when I've been caught in a moment of pain. Usually what this looks like for me is I just kind of freeze up and all my thoughts and my feelings just kind of try to hold them in, hold them close. I kind of start thinking, you know, maybe if I just had like a little time, I could kind of change this or fix this. And I start to believe the lie that by being unseen, unknown, isolated in that moment, that I could protect the relationships I care about. But of course, what actually happens is kind of all that pent-up emotion starts kind of morphing things inside me. Starts to leak out and resentment and bitterness. Kind of poisons the relationships I was trying really hard to protect. So in this season, I'm really reaching for Mary's beautiful example. How do I run to the feet of Jesus and confess my sadness, my anger, my fear? How do I trust that I'm looking up into the face of a God whose tears, who has tears in his eyes and is looking back at me with compassion? kind of carrying the weight of my pain in an even deeper way than I could. And I just listen. Are there some deeper narratives going on? Are there some old woundings that this experience just kind of bumped into? And on my really courageous days, I take all of those thoughts and feelings and I go to Will, or my life coach, or a trusted friend, my small group, and I just kind of get to bring all of those things into the light of community. And I get to kind of check in with the reality about if I've gotten confused somewhere along the way about who I am, about who God is. So in God's reality, we're beloved children created with sacred dignity and purpose. He says that he's near to the brokenhearted, that he saves those who are crushed in spirit. He says that he's the resurrection and the life, the prince of peace. I heard a saying recently that's really been helping me. If it's easy, do it alone. And if it's hard, do it together. It always gives me a little laugh reading Martha's line. Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Yeah, I've been thinking about how Lazarus' dead corpse is kind of like my old patterns of thinking and behaving that I'm trying to let go of. Because when I keep my emotions blocked, my deepest self hidden behind a rock in a dark cave, I start to decay doesn't smell very good. Those kind of old patterns of self-deception, they're not gentle on my mind or my heart. It's not the gentle yoke that Jesus talked about. They actually lead to death. Death of the person that God imagined when he created me. 
death to the relationships he gave me, his graces to bless me. But if I can allow my parts that no longer serve me to be unwrapped, led out into the light. Jesus' compassion will be the divine catalyst to restore my life. We will see his glory. We will come to life. Two years ago on this day, I was uh, sitting in a hospital bed. It would have been day 22 of what would end up being 64 days at Littleton Adventist Hospital. I was pregnant with our twin boys. My water had broke at 27 weeks with our baby B Brooks. And it was during the time of COVID where visitation was really limited. Um, they only allowed me one visitor a day. No children under 12 were supposed to be in the hospital. So I was separated from, from Will and um, our oldest, John Everett. I was uh, two and a half at the time. And I just, I had a lot of time to think just about my sadness that I knew Will was at home and trying to explain to him where his mom was. I knew that he was saying, when will she come home? And Will was having to say, I don't know. My anger that this had happened at all my fears that uh, Ellis and Brooks would come at any minute and have bleeding in their brains or under, underdeveloped lungs or just that they would come so tiny and fragile that they wouldn't allow me to hold them when they were born. And this moment was, it was a kind of death for me. It was the death of the control over the parts of my life that I cared about most. Um, you know, we were really blessed to kind of be held together by our family during that time. But we were not a part of a, of a church community. And the isolation and tension of kind of everything we were experiencing it just created a lot for Will and I to work through. Um, two years later, our, our lives are starting to look a little different. Uh, John Everett's so excited to be at church with all of you that he just dances like a wild man over here to the worship music, and he belts out, praise God, from whom all blessings flow. And he holds hands with Caleb up to receive the miracle of communion. And Ellis and Brooks, I mean, they're so healthy and active that they just crawl onto every single surface of my house, and Ellis just learned how to say, happy, and Brooks just learned how to say, I love you. And Will and I are one of the healthiest places of our relationship. We're just so jointly in awe over this tremendous blessing of our family. But I'm not saying all this because I want you to hear that pain and uncertainty, that season just didn't matter because we're all healthy and together now. I'm actually trying to tell you the opposite. When I was reflecting on Dave's question of 
renewing my hope in the things unseen, I just couldn't help but notice how that season just carved out all of this space in me for delight and for gratitude and how that death of my control just kind of resurrected parts of my heart that had gone to sleep. And Bloom, as I'm looking at so many faces that I care deeply about, I have a renewed hope that whatever season we're about to enter into next, whether it be a season of pain, I feel that we wouldn't be, cel- we wouldn't be mourning that alone. And I feel like if a season of joy is what we're about to into, enter into, I don't think we'd be celebrating that alone. I feel like this community would become the touchable, tangible reality of God's love in our lives. So, dear Bloom, what pain are you carrying that you would like to bring into the light of Christ? May you have the courage to confess your anger, your sadness, your fears. May you find that the compassionate, tender presence of God is looking directly at you, weeping with you, carrying that experience in an even deeper way than you could. May you know that your weeping is critical, the component that will release new sources of vitality in you. May you have a sacred space and a spouse, a trusted friend, your small group. May you feel seen in that hidden, gentle place. May you feel your bindings of shame just fall away as you gain energy for real freedom. May you know that God is trustworthy and you are loved.